Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. I'm joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I am great, David. Thank you very much. All the better for seeing you. All yes, all the better for seeing you, Frank. Uh, right. So uh, over the weekend, we had the conclusion of Trump impeachment round two, uh, which had, a, I guess, a similar outcome as Trump impeachment round one in the, as uh, he was impeached by the House and then not convicted by the Senate. Uh, but uh, I think this impeachment was different enough from the first round that we thought we would would discuss uh, both both the, the differences in these two impeachments and, and and what this says about the state of politics. Try to put all this. Yeah, I mean, I think Frank, were you we've done television, watching all the impeachment hearings. Uh, yeah, I was. I watched a lot last week. David, sorry, can I just uh, can I can I uh, hijack the conversation for just a minute before we start on impeachment? Though? Oh, by all means, Frank. <laughs> yes. Things never change. Some things never change. Uh, no, I just wanted to acknowledge that a listener, uh, Kate from Massachusetts, got in touch with me over the weekend while I was watching the. Um, and and Kate got in touch about our episode last week on conspiracy theories. And to some extent, this does relate tangentially to to impeachment. And uh, she mentioned that she was shoveling snow in Massachusetts. Uh, Kate is a chemistry professor there, um, and listening to our podcast, for which we are very grateful. But she she. Um, mentioned that she thought when we were talking about conspiracies, we might spend more time talking about um, anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic conspiracies and, the, and the, their relationship to, to racial conspiracies as well. And was a little surprised we didn't when we were talking about QAnon and, and such like. And given that QAnon is the kind of uh, backdrop, the, the background music to a lot of what happened both at the Capitol and frankly, uh, was revealed in the impeachment hearings. Mm. There is a kind of relationship. So I don't know if there's any follow-up we want to add to that, except to acknowledge that she's right. Oh, I, oh she's, I think 100% right. You know, the, you know, everything going back to the sort of protocols of, of Zion, there's all kinds of conspiracies that, that have, you know, manifested in various forms. 20th and 21st especially been thinking about QAnon there's all the stuff about George Soros and involvement various and sundry things uh, everything anti-semitic undertones to it that are not explicit overtones um so yeah uh, she's definitely right we, we, there were a bunch of things we didn't get a chance to talk to it's QAnon and nature does tend to infect it yeah we had another example of this last week indeed uh, the, the, the other big story that was big would be overstating it but another story that was prominent in certain avenues of the internet last week um, while the impeachment hearing was going on, was the Disney letting go of that actress from from Mandalorian? I don't watch Mandalorian. I've never seen it because uh -huh. I'm not a big spender like you, David. I don't have, I, I don't have Disney Plus. Um, <laughs> you are missing out. So, so you're, you're but not I watching WandaVision. You're, you're missing out on all lots of good television. Um, I am. I am. But, but anyway, but that actress was was let go by Disney uh, in part for. Um, circulating anti-Semitic memes and QAnon memes, but but so so there were there was a kind of th this reared its head uh, last week. Do you have? I mean, what's the story with that woman? Do you know the actress? Uh, you don't know uh, the yeah, actress. Well, you yeah, know, I don't, you know her work, I, presumably. I know, uh, she <laughs> yes, uh, I think her name is uh, Gina Carino. She was also in the Deadpool movie. Um, she's a former uh, professional wrestler, uh, and she played a, a assistant, a supporting role in the, the Mandalorian series. Um, yeah, she, she's uh, a Trump supporter and and uh, personality on right wing uh, media um, who made some incendiary comments about the insurrection and about the election and about uh, some other things that that got her in trouble and, and she dumped her. Um, and she seemed to have immediately gotten a movie deal with a right wing production. Company, so it's not as financial. She probably lost. And to tie our to, to tie this all together. 
Ted Cruz was particularly agitated about her being sacked by Disney, seemingly more agitated about that than the attack on the Capitol uh, last month. Oh, Ted Cruz, um, a very oddly, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a comic book nerd, although, uh, and he sort of loves the Princess Bride, although everyone who was a cast member of the Princess Bride seems to loathe him. Um, so anyway, enough about Ted Cruz. Let's talk yes, about anyway, impeachment, even though Ted Cruz so, yeah, was, yes. Well, he had a prominent role to play over the last week. So your question was, did I watch it? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I, I followed the hearings um, during the last week. Uh, I wasn't surprised at the outcome. We did get a little bit of a twist on Saturday when when the Senate voted uh, to, to call witnesses, and it seemed like we might have a much longer trial. And then there was a lot of um, back and forth that went on, obviously, in the, in the cloakrooms. It was all very 19th century um, on Saturday mm. afternoon, our time. And then they decided not to call witnesses and a deal was obviously reached. And they voted, um, they just voted on the one count of, of incitement to riot by President Trump. The a majority of the Senate voted in favor of it, 57. But of course, 67 votes, two thirds of the Senate would have been required for a conviction. And so Trump, I think was acquitted as a result, uh, technically speaking. Uh, I think the New York Times put it well when they said he was acquitted, but not exonerated. I think that's well put by the New York Times. Um, Yeah. So so how did you watch it, David? I watched parts of it. Uh, I had lots of other things going on this weekend, uh, so I didn't get to see all of it. but I guess one question we have to wrestle with is, how, you know, this is the second impeachment we've had of, of Donald Trump in a year. How is this one different from the first one? Well, he, he wasn't president when he was impeached <laughs> the second time uh, for a start. And that's quite an important thing, because, of course, uh, at the beginning of last week, about, about a week ago, they were debating whether this trial should go ahead because he wasn't president. And we'll get to that in a second. So I think that was important. In that sense, I think the stakes were both lower and higher. And and let me explain that. They were higher in the sense that this really was about history to a certain extent. I don't think prohibiting him from running for office again is that important as a sanction, because I'm just not convinced that Donald Trump in four years time is going to be physically able to run for president. I've never been persuaded that Donald Trump is in particularly good health. So I don't know whether in four years time he's going to be running for president. Um, So I'm less worried, uh, frankly, less worried about that. But I think the stakes were high as far as getting things on the record. And I think that was really, really important. However, without with him not holding office at the time, the stakes were lower. They wouldn't remove him from office when they had good evidence a year ago about him seeking to interfere with the election uh, or using Ukraine to interfere with the election. So I'm not surprised that they didn't vote um, now that he's left office for a conviction, they being the Republican, uh, the Republicans in the Senate. So I wasn't that, I, I guess I wasn't surprised by the outcome. And so I felt this, uh, the circumstances were very different. I feel the stakes are actually are very high as far as getting things on the historical record. And I think that was really important. I think that was achieved. But I don't think the immediate kind of desire to get 67 votes to prohibit him from holding office again necessarily matters. What do you think? Um, I think the fact that he was you know, out of office does change the calculus in all kinds of ways. And we, I think we should talk about the sort of historical antecedents for that in a minute. Um, you know, there was the Debate that happened, you know, after the House, whether the House should impeach him for this when they did, um, obviously, because he can't be removed from office. And the question about whether he's going to run again is, is up in the air. I think he is going to run again. I think he likes the idea of, of, of having big rallies and, and, you know, his his statement after his, his acquittal. Um, 
I think made it clear that 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 he's intending to that the movement, whatever the movement is, is going to continue. Uh, so I think he's planning at least on on running again in in three years or whatever it is. The campaign for twenty twenty four starts probably it already has started. So I'm sure we'll see a, a Trump rally next week or something. Um, I think the House had no choice but to impeach him. I think if 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 what Trump did is not impeachable, then nothing's impeachable. Um, I'm worried that this means that this part of the constitution is basically broken. If you can't convict somebody of, of basically ordering a mob to try and kill the vice president, uh, if that's not impeachable, then, you know, and, and the mechanism doesn't work and maybe the mechanism can't work under any circumstance. Um, and that, that troubles me because it does seem to give, uh, presidents who aren't uh you know up for re-election uh, an opportunity to do basically whatever they without any restraints i'm not sure i agree i mean i i i think that's a theoretical problem david i really do think trump was sweet generous in the way that he's he he found himself or, or put himself at the head of this popular movement um that's not all that popular it should be said but he has followers who really are fanatical in their devotion to him. Mm-hmm. Not a huge number, but they are but they are they are a considerable number and they are loud. And they have a disproportionate influence over the Republican Party at the moment, especially when it comes to nominating candidates. I recognize one of the things that people have been saying for the past four years, but particularly for the past three or four months, is oh, we really got lucky because if we had a more competent authoritarian, we'd be in trouble. We'd, we'd be even in even greater trouble. And I'm sympathetic to that argument to a point. However, that's not Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley. They mm. don't command that kind of popular support, and they just won't. I mean, that's uh, look. I'm not, I'm not here to say, oh, nothing to worry about here. Move along. But I'm not so sure that the, these circumstances would pertain in most other cases. So, so I think for for two reasons. First of all, I, I completely agree with you that what he did was impeachable, um, and and I would have liked to have seen a vote for conviction. But I'm not sure anybody else but Donald Trump in this particular moment could have got that result. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned. The, the constitutional sanction is still there. The way people use impeach, we've talked about this in previous mm. episodes, they use impeach to actually talk about the House vote to impeach somebody, which is actually to indict and have a trial. Well, we had that, we had that twice, which is pretty humiliating. And a lot of stuff is on the historical record. Um, I, I, I think the Senate, as it's currently constituted, is broken. We've talked about that in the mm. past. But I'm, I do think that uh, the uniqueness of Trump is is a key factor in all of this. Maybe. Dead, dead air, David. You yeah, need well, to speak. no, I'm just I'm I'm thinking I'm trying to think through what you're saying, Frank. Here, I'm trying to, to analyze your your your, your insight and comments. It. You know, I don't I don't want to fly off the handle here with with an ill considered comment. Um, in a I'll podcast, say so. I'll wait for a few seconds and then I'll have an ill considered comment. Um, it mean, it strikes me though that 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 the, 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 the I think you're right. There is some some elements to Trump that are unlikely to happen again, at least in the precise way. Um, but we've now had three presidents impeached and four impeachment trials and one guy resigned, um, you know, and the one guy resigned because he felt he was going to be impeached right, sure. and removed from all. I'm betting in the next Nixon case, he'll say, look, I didn't order a mob to go and try to kill the vice president. I'm going to hang out and, you know, uh, let and weather the storm. I think the 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 threat of um, 
except in people who who you know uh, really have a huge amount of respect for the Senate, uh, is 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 effectively you know gone. Uh, at least for, I think that's going to be one of the sort of aftermaths of this. Um, uh, obviously, I think we have we have a person in the White House right now who has a very different relationship to the Senate and different relationship to the Constitution and to his office that he holds than, than President Trump did. But uh, uh, you know, if we have another sort of Trump like person in the White House, they might use this as, as evidence pushing the limits um, constitutional. Sure, I mean, I but I I think that I think that's a possibility. I think what is more likely is that we're going to see more frequent impeachments, and we've seen Republicans already threatening this, mm. saying if they win the House in 2022, they're going to impeach Kamala Harris, for example. I don't know what for, but that was <laughs> they'll find they something. They were saying right, over yeah. the weekend, <laughs> right? Well, no, but but it may well be. That impeachment, that is the first part of the process, the vote in that by a majority of the House to indict mm. somebody in the executive branch will become more common. It'll become a bit like a vote of no confidence in a parliamentary system, in which case that two thirds majority in the Senate will be really important because we're going to get a lot more impeachment might become more common. If you think about it, since 1998, we've had three of them yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in the past 23 years. Then the fact that the bar is so high is a good thing, not a bad thing. Oh, to be sure. Okay. Um, now, obviously, one of the big issues that they, they talked about in this impeachment that makes it very different from the first one was the fact that in the first impeachment, Trump was still in office. And the question was whether Trump would be removed from office. This one, Trump has already left office. Uh and the question was not about removing him from office, but barring him from future office holding. Um, how much do you think that factored into to how the, the trial unfolded? I think it factored in a little bit. Uh, I think the, the, the more important factor for many of the, because what we're really talking about is why didn't they get 17 Republican senators to vote in favor of convicting Donald mm. Trump? Uh, because the case the House, the, the House managers made was really, really strong. In fact, one thing I would observe is if, if you support the Democrats or you're sympathetic to the Democrats, one good thing that came out of all this was the knowledge, wow, the Democrats have a really deep bench because these were often quite young members of Congress who were leading the, the as the impeachment managers on the Democratic side, and they were very good. And I think they made a very, very strong case. So the case was very strong. So why didn't Moore vote to convict? Because you could make the case, hey, he's out of office. He can't hurt you now. Yeah. I think what we're seeing play out is the fact that they're still afraid of the power of Trump and more importantly, Trump's base within the Democratic Party. And we've seen the censuring of people by part, state parties already over the over the weekend after the vote of the seven Republicans who voted to convict Trump um, as, as evidence of that. And so I think you know, it was a political calculation. There are two things at work here. It was a political calculation in terms of them holding their own seats. And as we know, every single United States senator believes that he or she should be president of the United States. And they were factoring that into their thinking, too, at least some of them, people like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. And they don't want to alienate that Trumpist base within the party whose support they'll need to win the nomination in, four, in now three years time. Hmm. What do you think? Um, well, I mean, I, part of the argument is that they leveled um, for why they voted not to convict him, and 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 you saw this in, in Mitch McConnell's speech afterwards, uh, was they thought that you couldn't impeach a person who was no longer in office, which is a question they actually debated and decided at the beginning of the trial, uh, and it's a question that you know the Senate has actually wrestled with in the past. 
There is uh, one really good example, and this was an example that the House managers brought up um, at the beginning of the impeachment trial of a person being impeached after having impeached and having a trial after he leaves office. And that's uh, William uh, Belknap, uh, who was Grant's secretary of war, um, which can you tell us about Belknap, David? Yeah. Please. So it's a, a fascinating uh, story. Belknap was um, uh, he's from Iowa. He's a Republican. He fought in the Civil War. Uh, he's Grant's secretary of war. And, and you know what the U.S. Army was doing uh, in the 1870s was largely uh, fighting Native Americans. So there's a whole series of wars going on on the plains. And so the Secretary of War is a critically important position. Belknap was known for having very lavish uh, parties in D.C. And everyone sort of wondered, how, how does the Secretary of War on a relatively modest salary able to sort of have these very lavish parties? His, his wife, and he's married several times. He has unfortunate health habits. Um is always very lavishly dressed, uh, latest European fashion. Turns out what he was doing basically was getting kickbacks from the guys who were running trading posts on military bases, uh, on military forts on the frontier. So they're privately run trading posts and, and, and one of them in particular, but there seems to be others as well, were giving him pretty substantial kickbacks for, for selling uh, overpriced goods to soldiers. Uh, and... There's a congressional investigation. They find out he's doing this. Very good evidence. They are just about to impeach him. Uh, Belknap goes to Grant and immediately resigns. Uh, and supposedly he was crying when he walked into Grant's office and Grant accepts his recognition. The House that afternoon decides to impeach him anyway. Uh, there are five charges against him, all related to this uh, sort of kickback scheme. Uh, one of them, uh, I'm just going to quote because I thought it was in 19th language. Uh, one of his, uh, the charges was basically prostituting his high office to his lust for private gain, uh, which is a, a sexual reference in the way they're talking about a, a bribery scandal. Um, they unanimously impeach him in the House goes to the Senate, and they have a fairly similar kind of debate as they had with, with Trump about can you impeach somebody who has no longer in office? And, you know, the difference in some ways was that here Belknap had actually resigned before the House had started his impeachment trial, which is different than with Trump, where the House had impeached him while he was still in office at the trial afterwards. Uh, and in fact, Belknap's lawyers said, look, if he had been impeached before he resigned, then you could have had the trial. But the fact that he resigned and then they impeached him made it invalid. But so they have they have this very lengthy debate about whether or not uh, a private person who is no longer in office can still be impeached. Uh, and the Senate concludes that you can. They had the trial last several months. They have a whole bunch of witnesses, uh, including George Armstrong Custer, who um, doesn't live that much longer afterwards. Um, and they vote. Um, and the vote is 35 to 25 to uh, convict him. Uh, in some ways, it's also like Trump, where the majority of senators voted to convict him, but they don't get the two thirds. So he didn't get the um, conviction the way that Trump did. But 140 years ago, they had already you know, had this constant debate about whether or not a former office holder could be impeached. And they had already decided that, that they could. Now, you know, this whole impeachment process, you know, if you look at the constitutional language of pretty thin. There's not a whole lot of detail in the Constitution about it, but the standards also practice. And one could argue that they, Congress made the wrong decision in the Belknap case. Um, 
but it does seem as if that seems to be a, a reoccurring. The, the, there's a lot of similarities between the, the Trump impeachment and the Belknap impeachment. That's that's really interesting, David. The other one from that era, which of course is more famous, is the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Mm. And Andrew Johnson, of course, was impeached while he was president. So that is a huge difference between um, what happened last weekend and and um, Johnson's experience. Mm. However, I was thinking a lot about Johnson this weekend and then thinking about this this um, podcast in mm. the sense that. And this goes to your the Constitution's broken argument. The track record for people after they get impeached is not very good. Now, it's a very small sample size. We're talking about Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton. Um, Richard Nixon wasn't impeached, but de facto, I think he included. Mm. Um, and, and, and Donald Trump. And I think, you know, Andrew Johnson wasn't removed from office. Everybody knows that. But he was disgraced and he ended his life in disgrace. His presidency petered out pretty ineffectual. He was pretty ineffective for the remainder of his presidency as a result of, of his impeachment. And I think, you know, it left a mark, as it were. And I think the reports that we had from in the press last week about Trump's dissatisfaction with his lawyers reflects the fact that this also is leaving a mark. And there's an element, there's an element of humiliation associated with this, regardless of the outcome. Uh, especially since a majority of the, uh, I think a majority was important here, a majority of the senators, including seven from his own party, voted to convict him. Um, so I, I, do you think the Andrew Johnson story is instructive at all? That, it's another one from your yeah. period. Yeah, well, um, the thing about Johnson's impeachment and sort of what happens to him afterwards is, you know, the, the, the last few months of his presidency are relatively uneventful. Um, but then he goes back home after he leaves office and he's immediately looking for vindication that he was in fact correct. And he starts a campaign to run for Senate and he very, and obviously in the 19th century, the, the Senate is not a um, popularly elected body. It's selected by the state legislature uh, and even sort of the, the machinations about how one runs for more complicated, than but he very narrowly gets reelected to the Senate. He had previously been in the Senate um, in the 1850s. Uh, you know, which he took as, in some ways, a vindication that that the, the people of of Tennessee believed in him and believed in, in that he was in the right as president. Um, so it's not as if he sort of faded into obscurity after his impeachment. Um, but he didn't win. Well, he didn't win that one, although it, it was very, very close. And, um, you know, he does play around with elective office uh, for, for a whole series of times um, afterward. Um, and he actually, I think he does, you know, he doesn't get reelected to the Senate that year, but he does eventually get reelected to the Senate, I believe in 1875. Um, I'm doing this. So, you know, he, he, in his mind, he was vindicated uh, in, in the sort of long scope of history. Uh, we often forget about his sort of post, uh, his post, president's uh, career but he did uh you know live for a good had, had a long political career after the president uh you know thinking about the other presidents that were impeached you know what happens to them afterwards uh or after they resigned you know, nixon rehabilitates himself to some degree at least within uh you know the public eye such that by the time of his death he's seen as a senior statesman who has been dis you know a disgrace but st one that still has some gravitas and, and worthy of, of recognition uh clinton you know uh his, his post-presidency is people people have, have have not held his impeachment against him particularly i don't think um 
and I'm I'm I think that there's a decent chance that Trump's going to come back, and, and if he doesn't run again, I think there's going to be he's going to play a, a very prominent role in in the next couple of election cycles. You know, there are discussions about having members of his family run um, for the Senate in Florida, North Carolina, and, and other places, uh, so we could have a whole contingent, even if he himself is. There is another option, though, besides impeachment, I guess, with Trump, and that, and that some people have talked about, and that's using uh, the 14th Amendment to disqualify him from public office. Yeah, how would be, that work, David? Well, okay, so uh, the 14th Amendment is uh, one of these thinking about this is also sort of a reconstruction um seems to be very relevant in multiple levels in this discussion. The 14th Amendment does several things. It's uh, birthright citizenship is in the 14th Amendment. Equal protection is in the 14th Amendment. Those are the parts when people think about the 14th Amendment today that they tend to point to. Uh, but Section 3 about, of the 14th Amendment is about sort of the status of, of former Confederates and their eligibility for public office. Um, and Section 3 says that no person shall be a senator or representative or Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, et cetera, et cetera, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or an officer of the United States or as a member of the state legislature, et cetera, et cetera, to support the Constitution, who shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. And Trump looks, sounds like he falls under that rubric of giving aid and comfort to people who are engaged in insurrection. Um, and, you know, the ways in which the 14th Amendment is written, or at least the way some people have interpreted it, you could, Congress could, by a simple majority vote, determine that Trump uh, gave aid or comfort to an insurrection against the United States and therefore was no longer eligible to hold public office. That could be a way of not only, you know, if one wants to sort of really take the the... The, the nuclear option here, you could use this Section 3 of the 14th Amendment not only against Trump, but also against members of Congress who seem to support the insurrection as well and disqualify them from public. Um, now, the only people I've heard calling for this are people who are Reconstruction historians who tend to be very interested in the, the minutia <laughs> of the 14th Amendment. Um, but it's a, it's, an, it's a constitutional option that's available. I mean, it, this was written specifically for people who supported the Confederacy. But the way it's written doesn't mean that it has to be. And if you take what happened on um, January 6th as a insurrection and a rebellion against the United States, you'd be hard-pressed to find another way of talking about what happened there uh, other than um, people who gave aid or comfort to it uh, can be disqualified from public office. Uh, and uh, one could envision an alternate version of today in which, which you know, a whole raft of people are, uh, including you know, Star Wars fan Ted Cruz, uh, who are uh, barred, barred from uh, holding elective office. Yeah, you can imagine that, but it's not going to happen because I could see possibly them applying that to Trump, but mm. Congress is a club, isn't it? And they're all in the club. Uh, and even people who hate Ted Cruz aren't going to be that keen to see the precedent set whereby uh, they start to ban people for it'll be pre presented as it's not unlike your woman from the Mandalorian. It won't be, it'll be cancel culture, won't it? That's how well, it'll be presented. And, but, and I, I, I'm not sure they're going to go that far. Uh, I mean, I, I think you're, you're right. They're not going to go that far. Although the, the standard for having to join this, this, you know, uh, to, to fall under this particular clause of the, of the 14th amendment, you, you do have to have, supported an insurrection against the United States, which is not something that can be applied indiscriminately unless you're, yeah. Um, 
but that is an option that's on the table, at least in theory. Um, at least among Reconstruction historians. historians well, you know, it's it's. <laughs> we got to make history relevant, Frank. And you know, this Fourteenth Amendment's a really important <laughs> amendment, and 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 you know, people pay a lot of attention to clauses <laughs> one and two. Uh, clauses three, uh, sections three and four are 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 really important as well. Uh, as is as is section five for that. Um, yeah, uh, but probably not. Although. Um, <laughs> right. So, 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 David, before we ask, we ask, so, so, go ahead. What does this mean for the future of the Republic? I mean, one of the things pointed out about the vote this time in the minute is there were far more, this was a far more bipartisan vote to convict than in previous. In Trump's first impeachment trial, you had one or two defections. This time you had when Republicans vote for, for conviction. Uh, what does this say about the future of the Republican? I think the future of the Republican Party is arguably the most important discussion in American politics right now, uh, because, uh, well, we don't know what direction it's going to go in, and, and it will have a big say. The debate that's going on within the Republican Party, and I'm using the term debate in a very liberal fashion, um, mm. is, is, is crucially important in determining what American politics will look like in the next decade or so. I think it looks at the moment as though the Trumpists are in control and will be, and it's, we keep reading that it's Trump's party and maybe that's the case. He was, you know, exonerated. No, he was, he was uh, acquitted, but not exonerated. But if you look at right-wing social media, this is an exoneration and they've, they've celebrated that in the past couple of days. Um, the backlash against the seven senators who voted to, to remove, to convict president Trump has been swift and pretty um, powerful. All that would suggest that the Trumpists and it's going to remain a Trumpist party. It's, it's, the evidence is there. On the other hand, we see people like Mitch McConnell uh, condemning President Trump. We see Nikki Haley trying to both be a Trumpist and uh, mm. condemn President Trump. She clearly has presidential aspirations. Mitch McConnell does not. Um, Mitt Romney is an interesting case. On one hand, he is... Um, you know, he is in a unique position uh, coming as he does from, from Utah and being a well-established um, never-Trumper, although he was kind of a sort of Trumper back in 2017 when he might become Secretary of State, State but yeah, basically that, a never-Trumper. That, that famous, <laughs> the famous dinner they had with the weird, creepy candlelight. Yeah, anyway. Um, that's right, that's right. But, 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 but I think Mitt Romney is, is banking on becoming the leader. And, and by, actually, that's slightly unfair. I think Mitt Romney's opposition to Trump seems to be pretty principled. But I also think he might be making a calculation that, you know, this is a fever dream. And when the Republican Party comes out of it, somebody's got to be left standing. And, mm. hey, I'm only 74 years old. Look how old President Biden is. <laughs> Mitt Romney might still have presidential aspirations of his own. And, and mm. so I, I think there's a lot of I, I think that the real debate within the Republican Party uh, and it's a struggle that's going to be played out at, uh, in local government and in state government and in national government over the next few years is, is it going to be a Trumpist party or not? And I think they honestly don't know the answer to that. And as somebody who's not part of that debate, it's very difficult mm. for me to say much more than that. But I think this is, if you want to see signs of progress from the standpoint of hoping it's not a Trumpist party, you can say, hey, seven senators buck the party and buck Trump and his influence and, and voted to convict. That's more than ever. Um, so that's progress. On the other hand, you can say, look, given the overwhelming evidence that was presented, uh, you know, th we need to at least acknowledge in passing, 
the video evidence that was presented was incredibly powerful and incredibly harrowing. How yeah. could they not get a hundred senators to convict? So the fact that well, you know there's evidence yeah. of, of of the strength of Trumpism that that basically you know the the party line held. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just think you know, think about that video. I mean, one of the people that that shown in the video to almost to have been lynched by the mob was you know was Mitt Romney. So him voting to convict, yes. did, you know, it's it's not hard to there's there's multiple ways you can explain it. Um, you know, I think he was voting from principle, just like he was in, in the first impeachment. Um, but I also think that the uh, the fact fact that he featured prominently in terms of the who the crowd was targeting seems to be relevant as well. Uh, you know, I think this is our, the American political parties have appeared to be relatively stable at least for the past century. Um, but there have been moments in which you know parties have have, have fractured and have been in jeopardy of, of falling apart. You know, it's in the 1890s in which it looked like America was going to be completely reorganized. There's the period uh, in the sort of you know, late 40s into to, to early 60s in which the Democratic Party also seemed to be sort of reorganizing itself in a variety of ways, uh, which you could have envisioned you know, new parties being established or, or some kind of uh, major. Uh, refiguration um, of the landscape. And, and I think that's the moment we're in. Um, things could change quite rapidly, I think, in the next election cycle or two uh, in terms of the party party makeups and in terms of, uh, you know, what what it means to be a Republican. What does it mean um, to to, you know, function within that party? What 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 things does the party stand for? Uh, so so I think there's uh, yeah a lot, lot left to watch. I think the voters are going to have a lot to say about this, mm. uh, uh, <laughs> to be sure. Especially given the, well, no, but I think given the changing demography of the mm. country, um, as the country becomes more um, ethnically and racially diverse, uh, a party, if the if the party remains a Trumpist party or becomes a more strongly Trumpist party, appealing essentially to white nationalism, as we talked about last week in terms of conspiracy theories, I think they're going to face an electoral challenge. Um, their influence over the Senate might still be great because of the way um, mm. senators are allocated and so on, as we've talked about in the past. But I think they they face an electoral challenge. The Republican Party has only won the popular vote once in the past 32 years of presidential elections. So they, they face a challenge. Having said that, you know, that some of the um, some of the results from from last November are quite interesting. The fact that Trump did pretty well among Latinos is, or certainly performed above expectations among Latino voters is an interesting indicator. So, so I think, um, as I said, I think the change in demography of the country and the changing shape of the electorate is going to be a huge factor. The degree to which the Republican electorate doesn't look like the American electorate generally is a challenge for the Republican party. Hmm. But if they can make their electorate look more like the elect the general election electorate, then they, you know, they've got, they've got um, more hope, I guess. But this is, this is, as I said, in many respects, the most important question in American politics right now, because um, the United States has historically flourished when it's had two political parties that are basically competent, that can confront each other and compete against each other for, for, for power. Yeah. Well, we we will see what happens to the Republican Party uh, in, in uh, years to come. Right, uh, Frank, you got a last drop. Yes, I do, but I I actually have two, David, because I want to follow up from oh. last week's last drop, which was about the blue beads found in Alaska 
that, that we mentioned. And the initial press reports uh, suggested, as, as we said last week, that those may have come from Venice uh, and arrived uh, in Alaska before, in the decades before Columbus arrived in, in uh, the Western Hemisphere in 1492. Well, that narrative has been challenged by a uh, professor of anthropology at the University of Alabama named Elliot Blair. And Blair has argued um, and I'm not an expert in this kind of material culture, so I'm simply reporting this as a follow-up on the last last week's last drop. Uh, mm. According to Professor Blair, it's more likely that these beads were manufactured in Venice in the 16th or 17th century, and thus they are probably of slightly later vintage, although, as he said um, in the press report on this I read, it's still a really interesting story, the fact that these beads mm. made it to Alaska in the 16th or 17th century, but they may not have come, it seems, uh, prior to Columbus. So that's a kind of rider on last week's yeah. last drop. If I could so they're indulge old, and not... I'll give you this week's less, not as old as we thought would seem to be the case. But my last drop for this week is, uh, uh, speaking of old, I want to um, uh, remark, I want to, I want to call your attention to a remarkable um, obituary in the New York Times uh, from yesterday of a man named S. Presley Blake. And S. Presley Blake died, he was 106 years old, and he and his brother founded Friendly's, which was a chain of ice cream parlors, uh, mainly originally in Massachusetts and then across the Northeast and really mainly in the East Coast of the U.S. now. Uh, but, but S. Presley Blake and his brother founded Friendly's uh, in 1935 with a $547 loan from their parents. They charged five cents for two scoops of ice cream in 1935, which was half the uh, going rate. Um, and so you got two scoops of ice cream for a nickel. That would be the equivalent of 95 cents today. Um, friendlies, I mean, I know you'll know Friendlies, David, because yes. um, you've lived on the East Coast. And so Friendlies is a real institution for people on the East Coast, especially in New England and the Northeast. Yeah, yeah. I went on uh, many a date in high school with my current wife at the local Friendlies. My sister worked at a Friendlies. Friendlies has a so Friendlies was an ice cream. Pala, and uh, and it grew to be a national chain at one point. It then had some financial difficulties. It's still around though, and and uh, anybody, especially from New England, will have a soft spot for friendlies in their hearts. So I want to acknowledge the passing of S. Presley Blake, the founder of what the co-founder of Friendlies, and I recommend that obituary in yesterday's New York Times. Now I don't know whether the menu at Friendlies has changed recently, but. But my memory is that there was always sort of the ice cream sundae, but it had like a smiley face on it and other kinds of, of you know, relatively cheap ice cream, but 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 made to look impressive. Uh, and clearly it worked as a romantic tool for you. Uh, I mean, me back and back. And, it did. It uh, did. And, and David, David, you must remember what their frap is called. They're 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 um, well, a frap is a really New England thing anyway, but they're yeah, I was thinking, yes, they're, they're ice cream drink. I'm trying to. I don't remember. It's been many, many years since I've been to a friend. It was the fribble. It was called the oh, fribble. Okay. Um, yes, and the, the fribble, the fribble okay. is a now. Now this is we're really this is a deep cut on friendlies, but a fribble. And they had a rival from Rhode Island called the Newport Creamery, mm. and their frap, their ice cream based drink was called an awful awful. And if you drank three awful awfuls, you got one free. I, my grandmother lived in Rhode Island, so she used to take us to the Newport Creamery, which was friendlies' rival. Uh, well, I used to go a to friendly the, rivalry, of course. 
I, I used to go to Friendly's uh, on the Boston Post Road back in, in Connecticut. So uh, fond memories as well. Anyway, David, your last drop. Uh, yes, I want to uh, endorse uh, another podcast. If you're finished listening to this one, you're looking for more things to listen to. And it's the Last Best Hope podcast hosted by uh, our friend Adam Smith at Oxford. Um, in some ways, it's a, a similar podcast, a good sort of compliment to the Whiskey Rebellion uh, in as much as it's a, a uh, historian um, from the UK commenting and, and talking about uh, uh, American politics and history. Uh, the difference, of course, is that, that Adam Smith is a, an authentic British person uh, talking from the outside about uh, American uh, American expats uh, talking about uh, a good compliment, if you will, last best hope. Uh, the title of which, of course, a quotation from Abraham Lincoln, who recently today you know, to recommend last best. Right. Until next week, Frank. Cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.